So we come now to what is only the most disputed, controversial, confusing, abstruse passage in what is perhaps uh, the book that has all those, the book in the Bible that would have all those adjectives appended to it as well, <laughs> Revelation. Uh, Revelation 20. Revelation 20, the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ, the millennial um, sealing over of Satan, throwing him in a pit for a thousand years. And millennium just means a thousand year reign, by the way. And so this, when is it going to be? When, it, when are these thousand years that Jesus is going to reign? When is it going to be that Satan is going to be thrown into the pit? Man. This one's a doozy, and we are getting here toward the end of Revelation, 22 chapters in total, so we're, we're close, Revelation 20, and really the millennium is, it's mentioned in these first six verses, Revelation 21 through 6, and a lot of ink has been spilled, thousands of pages have written over the years on, on, on this, these few verses, so we're going to solve it all right here, right now. Ha. Look. Let me let me give you a theological grid, first of all, and then we'll jump in. So there historically have been three. Uh, OK, let me read the passage. Get ahead of myself here. And then I will give you a, a, a brief and simple, as simple as possible theological grid. OK, and then we'll talk some about Satan's binding. We'll talk some about Christ's reign with the saints, and then we'll we'll draw some conclusions and apply. Revelation 20, verse 1 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with him for a thousand years. That's one through six verses seven through the end of the chapter. We won't read today. We mainly talk about these six verses and then touch kind of summarize and wrap up the, uh, the, the rest of the chapter at the end there. But we're going to focus on the millennium here. So let me give to you, first of all, just a theological grid, the three historic millennial views. They are premillennialism or, or historic or, or classical. Pre-mill, um, post-millennialism and amillennialism. All right. So, pre-millennialism to, to understand again millennial or millennialism. Millennial means so. There's the pre-millennial view, there's the post-millennial view, and there's the amillennial view. Uh, those are the three historic views. And when I say pre-millennial, I mean historic or classical. That's how theologians refer to that. There's a there's an offshoot of pre-millennial which I'll talk about fourthly, it's not historic, okay, nor is it global. Um, 
historical classical pre-mill. So for all these pre, post, and ah, uh, the millennial means the thousand year reign and, and also the thousand year. So as Christ is reigning in these thousand years, Satan is bound. Okay. Those happen at the same time. The, so, okay. The thousand year reign. Well, what does pre, post, and ah mean? The prefix is where Jesus is. That's the best way to understand it. If you're just trying, I just want to give you a clear theological grid. So when you hear, okay, what, what's my view? What's my stance on the millennial view? based on the text too as you look at it okay here are the three options historically could be a fourth could be a fifth although i don't know what the fifth would be but jesus is where the prefix is right just to sort of demystify it for you what do i mean by that so pre-millennialism jesus would be the pre he's described by the prefix by pre pre-millennial so pre means before right like a, a preview is you're viewing something before the movie that you're going to view. So premillennial means Jesus is pre, Jesus comes or he returns pre or before the millennium, the thousand year reign. So what that means is premillennial, the premillennial view is that Jesus comes, he returns, and then the thousand year reign starts. So he comes before the thousand year reign. In other words, he's not, he, the thousand year reign is not right now. It's, it's after he returns. So he comes pre, he comes before the millennium, the thousand year reign. Postmillennial is, yes, that's right, Jesus comes post the thousand year reign. He comes after. That means he's reigning now or that they believe that he, to put it as bluntly and literally as I can, post-millennial view means that they believe that um, Jesus, when he comes again, when he returns, the thousand year reign will have already happened. Maybe it's happening now. now. Maybe it's happening at some point in the future, but it, it, uh, the rain will happen, his thousand year rain will happen, and then he will return. So he comes post that thousand year rain after. Um, and I say, and there's, that's a bit more complex just because there's variation in that view. Some, and there's variation in every view, honestly, but some believe that, I'm just trying to keep it simple for you. Some post millers believe that the whole time he's reigning now, the entire time between his first and second coming. So they would obviously believe that the thousand years is not literal. It's a long period of time. It's a symbolic number in Revelation that means a long, long period of time. So the, that, that post miller would believe that Jesus is reigning now, and he's been reigning since his resurrection and ascension, and that he will continue to reign in these thousand years until he returns. Uh, so, and it's really the same for pre-millers. Some pre-millers believe in a thousand, a literal thousand year reign, and others believe it just means a long period of time. But either way, that it won't start until Jesus returns. Okay, ah, millennial is is tricky only because it's really very similar to post. Post and amill are cousins, um, in that they both believe they both believe believe essentially the same thing about the millennium, that it happens before Christ returns, namely now. Why? Okay, so why ah, millennial? Pre and post. Are, I understand that. Right? Pre means before, post means after. What about ah? Well, ah means not. So, so an, so an atheist or an atheist, no one says I'm an atheist. Okay. Unless you're <laughs> maybe British, but, um, kudos to all my British friends out there. Lived in Britain for four years. So, uh, I love you. Okay. Uh, ah, millennial. Okay. So uh, atheist an a at the beginning of the theist means, you know, someone who believes in theos in the Greek word for God. Atheist negates it, at the beginning, A at the beginning of the word negates it. So I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. I believe there's no God. Apathy, pathos, meaning passion, 
or deep feeling, right? Uh, apathy, meaning it takes it away. Okay, I don't feel anything. I just I'm I'm languid. I'm 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 dead on the inside. I'm apathetic. I don't care. So um, now enough of that. So ah millennial means no millennium. Literally means no millennium. It's a misnomer. It's not a good realized realized millennium would be a better. Tom Schreiner advocates for that that term in his commentary, in his excellent commentary, by the way, uh, in the ESV commentary series. But uh, it's not as catchy. It's easier just to throw three prefixes on there for the three main historic views, pre, post, and ah. It'd be weird to say pre, post, and realize. Right? Okay, so ah millennium means no millennium. Why do they, why does, they, we do believe, I'm, I say we, I just give my position away. I'm an ah millennial. I believe in ah millennialism. That's my position. But there are three historic positions for a reason. In other words, they're all viable. This is a hard text. We've got to give grace here. We've got to really dig and consider. And then when we have a position, be convinced by it, but be open to the others. Unlike with, you know, believing in the Trinity, God is Father, Son, Spirit, that he sent his son to save us, to completely do all the work necessary for our salvation, that we trust in him, that he's fully God, fully man, that he paid for our sins on the cross, that he that he imputes his righteousness to us through faith. These are things we believe in a historic resurrection. We believe in um, a self-existent God who's not dependent on his creation, who loves us, who made things good, who's coming again. You know, all these things are dogma. These are creedal. These are things that we hopefully would go to the stake for and may indeed one day. But, but, um, but that's not this. We care about these things. They're here for a reason. They're important. But this is the only place in the whole Bible that we actually, this doctrine is formed around this, uh, the millennial doctrine. What do you believe about the millennium? That's where it, it comes from here. Revelation 20. Now it, it's, it's mentioned in other ways. So where millennium is here only it's mentioned in a lot of other places, even in the old Testament, the prophets um, and, and Jesus and the gospel certainly talks about it. And the letters, the other letters uh, in the new Testament mention it uh, some, but not, not with this word millennium. So, so that's one of the things that we, as we're weighing, are we pre, post, or ah, that we need to weigh, how does this hard passage, how, did, how, did, how does the rest of the Bible elucidate it? How does the rest of the Bible make it clear? How does it fit with the rest of scriptures? And that's one of the reasons I am an amillennialist. Now, let me finish describing amillennialism. I haven't done that. It technically means not, no millennium. Okay, so technically the name means amillennialists don't believe in a millennium. Why, did, why that? Because amillennialists don't believe that the in a literal thousand year reign in other words they believe in a long reign of christ that is not literally exactly 1000 years because revelation is an an ancient apocalyptic prophetic epistle letter it's it's part of the apocalyptic genre which is common in the ancient near east which was full of symbol replete with symbolism and john uh absolutely uses includes numbers in his symbols and so um, you know, and actually a thousand years, even in passages that aren't symbolic in, in, in other bits of the scriptures that aren't uh, laden with symbol, a thousand is used symbolically, you know, um, to the Lord, a thousand, uh, a thousand years are like a day and a day, like a thousand years, just a thousand. What about a thousand and one? What about 2000? Okay. It means a long, you get the point. The point is a long, long period of time. It, God's overtime. It doesn't affect him like it affects us, right? And same with, uh, similar with Deuteronomy, where we are told that you know, God says to Moses and through Moses to Israel, uh, to us, that 
he will show he's a God who's good and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. And he will show blessing um, to those who um, enter into his covenant and trust in him to the thousandth generation of those who love him. And so does that mean the thousand and first is, is plum out of luck? No, it doesn't. Same thing. It means it's a long, it means long, 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 long. It's a many, 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 many generations. That's his, that's his leaning. That's his disposition. That's his bent is to show compassion, not to judge. He doesn't want to judge. Judging, as Calvin said, is his alien work. It's not part of his character, just in who he is. If nothing existed, God would not be a judge. But he is just. And so when evil and sin happens, it must be accounted for. You can't let it go because he's good. Anyway, so, so all of this don't believe in a literal thousand years, but they do believe in, of course, because it's here in the scriptures, in the long reign of Christ and the corresponding long binding of Satan. They just don't read it literally. They read it symbolically. And some post-millennials do too. And so that's why both the post-miller and the amiller believe that Christ returns after his reign and that he's reigning now. Every amillennialist would believe, as far as I understand it, that the reign of Christ, and here's one of the reasons I land on this position, because I'm a simple man, some who know me would would just roll their eyes at this because I want to be simple, but sometimes I'm not. But I'm a simple man, and it's a simple chart and a simple um, construct that just, that helps us understand Amil. Amil believes, quite simply, that the reign of Jesus that this is referring to, where the Father is putting all of his enemies under his feet through his victory at the cross in his life, in his fully satisfactory death, and in his resurrection from the dead, where he met with those that he wanted to meet with to attest to his victory over death, and then kept going 40 days later up to heaven to the right hand of the Father, where Psalm 110.1 is fulfilled. It's the most quoted, I believe, scripture by the New Testament authors uh, as far as applying it to Jesus. It's certainly the most quoted and applied psalm by the New Testament authors to Jesus. And that is that the father says to the son, um, the, David writes it. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. In other words, in other words, the father said to the son, David's Lord, that came from David's womb, sit here while I make of your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, when you put your, if your enemies are a footstool for your feet, that means your, your, your feet are on the heads of your enemies or on the necks of your enemies. That was an ancient Near Eastern symbol for total conquest. If your enemies are at your feet, that means that you've destroyed them. They're, they're at your mercy. And Jesus accomplished that at the cross and his resurrection was proof of that, was his vindication as is his ascension. So when you ascend to the throne and send your spirit to fill your apostles and they go out preaching and your disciples and those who look to you by faith and they go out preaching the gospel and people um, are getting saved left to right. Anyone who look, calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, Acts 2, I believe that's verse 21, that is a sign of your great victory. Jesus is on the throne. The Father, through what he has done, is making of his enemies a footstool for his feet, and he will return one day to consummate or complete what he has inaugurated, what he has begun. All millennials believe that the chart looks like this. It start, The bracket starts with he came the first time, and then his conquest, his reign, the binding of the corresponding binding of Satan 
is just a straight horizontal line from his coming down the first time, his first advent, his incarnation, okay? And then the line goes horizontally all the way through the church age, the age of the Spirit, that's right now, as he reigns at the right hand of the Father through his work and through his church, he is reigning. And then the next vertical line is his second coming. First coming, church age, second coming. That is, it's very simple. That is the millennium. That is the reign of Jesus Christ, where anyone who looks to him is, uh, takes hold of, comes to life, and reigns with him for a thousand years, and is um, privy to the first resurrection, which I'll get to in a bit. We would, Amelinus would most, I believe, would refer to that, would see to that, see that as the first resurrection is the spirit. You come, you come to life. You're born a second time. You're born again as you trust in Jesus and your spirit is now wed to the spirit of the living God. You're alive and animated because of his breath in you through faith in Jesus. You're made a child of God and the second death will never touch you. Okay, you die, you die the first time, but you won't die the second time because you have, you have experienced the first resurrection, the spiritual resurrection. And you will indeed, because of that, experience the second resurrection, which is a bodily resurrection when Jesus returns. The first resurrection, the minute you trust in Christ and are made to live, you're born again a second time. Uh, the first time you were born, you were born from your mother uh, and you were, your federal head was Adam, the first Adam, and you were dead on arrival, dead to God, dead in sin dead in rebellion against him, wanting to be on the throne of your own life. When you look to Jesus and surrender to him and trust in him as your Lord and Savior, you are born anew, born a second time. That's the first resurrection. That's a, that's a promise that you will be resurrected a second time and receive also an imperishable body, not just an imperishable spirit, but what follows an imperishable body. The, the body follows the spirit. And, uh, and that's all wrapped up in some of the things that John is is, is laying out for us here. Now, that's my interpretation based on the omnial perspective. I gave you more on that because uh, just kind of by accident, but just because it's uh, it's simple. It makes sense of the text to me, although not necessarily all, but it's still it's still a tricky, sticky, tough text. Um, it makes sense of, to me, much more of the scripture, Old and New Testament as well. And it also resonates with, it has the ring of truth to me. It resonates with what we experience now uh, to me as well. And let me, on that note, let me say, so So, what do I mean by that? Partly, I mean, the Amillennialist believes that the reign of Jesus doesn't result in the earth just getting better and better and better. It's not an overt kingdom. When he talked about the kingdom here on earth, he said the kingdom's among you, the kingdom's growing, the kingdom's here, the kingdom's imminent. His kingdom, he brought it the first time it broke into, when the king came, it broke into this world. He would heal, he would deliver from demons, but eventually he, he was crucified. And in the book of Acts, we see the same thing happening, but it's always under persecution. It's under duress and stress and pressing and persecution and suffering and privation that the uh, of the body of Christ, the church, that the kingdom of God goes forward in power. That's what God called out the economy of the cross. And that is how his kingdom grows. And that is how his reign manifests itself. Now, so it's a hidden kingdom. It's, it, and that's the way he describes it while he's in the Gospels, while he's on this earth over and over and over again. So Amun and Lonelius don't believe in necessarily an overt kingdom. He's reigning, but his 
power goes out largely through weakness, the economy of the cross. And, and yes, that does manifest itself in, in, a, in a better life in, in many ways. I mean, if you study history of the past 2000 years, um, you see that, like, especially in the Middle Ages, the, the advent of, uh, well, all throughout church the past 2000 years, really, church history. But you see hospitals, orphanages, universities, and so much more. Uh, the, the Western understanding we have of human rights that everyone espouses and embraces, even those who are secular humanist or atheist and don't believe in, in a God at all or the, or the God of the Bible, certainly they just think, oh, yeah, human rights. No, no, those those come from many great books have been written on the fact that that comes from uh, that's a Christian and that's a Judeo that's a Judeo Christian inheritance. Those come from the scriptures um, and that that all arose out of. The kingdom of God going forward. Now, is that to say that um, that, that the church is always uh, that the church is always brought in a, a better a better life for people? Of course not. Of course not. I don't, I'm not saying that. Um, but what I am saying, the larger point that I'm trying to make is that that the the Amillennialists believe that the reign of Christ is is often hidden as His kingdom goes forward, but it but it really does often bring about overt overtly um, improved. Uh, inadvertently improve life and civilization. I mean, Western Civ is in large part a result of the spread of the gospel. And so, um, and we see that his kingdom has indeed gone forth in the past 2,000 years massively, right? I mean, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was, uh, he came to his own people. Only the Jews believed in Jesus, and even the Jews crucified him. And now, every nation Every, almost every nation, his gospel, his kingdom has spread as the gospel has gone out. You see, even see this in the book of Acts by, even by Paul didn't write Acts, but even in Paul's letters, he says, he's saying things at the end of his life, like, hey, the gospel's gone out over all the world. And what he means is all the, all the world, um, of his day, right? Um, but even then, a generation after Jesus's resurrection, we saw, um, we saw that the kingdom was going out massively and so now it's spread out over all the globe and in our in our generation we may be the first we could be the first generation in the in history to see every jesus said i won't return until every nation tribe and tongue has um has had the gospel preached to it and we we are the first that could and probably will god willing see that happen that accomplished um and so all that to say, all millennialists believe in the quality, it's the quality of the reign of Christ in the millennium. It's the quality of the kingdom manifest in this age between his first and second coming that really differentiates all millers from post millers, their, their cousin. So post millers, um, so we both believe that uh, Christ will return after the reign. He's reigning now. But post millers believe in the qual- that the quality of the kingdom of God is going to, it's going to be more overt. They talk about a golden age sometime where their life expectancy will be longer. Now, have we seen that in the West in the past few centuries? Absolutely. But life expectancy will be longer. The quality of life will be better. Even, you know, less crime, less locks on doors. It'll be so tangible, the kingdom of God, that we we will be um, we'll see all these things happening and it will be more overt, more physical. And there's something to that. Certainly, but I think that um, the Lord said things like, when, when the Son of Man comes, will he find 
place on earth. And he talked, he gave parables about the kingdom that talked about the wheat and the tares growing together. And really we see that the church grows. The church is thriving the most when it's under the most pressure and the kingdom is going out the most uh, under the most duress, like a, like a fist on water. The water just spreads out in every direction as the fist comes down. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so um, oftentimes God's kingdom grows as the evil grows alongside it, right? And it's where, it's where the church is taking it easy that the kingdom uh, isn't going out hardly at all. And so I think that the quality of the kingdom in the amillennialist view is something that just squares more with me um, and makes better sense too of even some of the prof- prophecies in Isaiah, even the prophecies in Isaiah 11 and 65, which some of our post-mill brothers and sisters would say. So post-mill, based on that quality of the kingdom thing, a lot of post-millers would say uh, there, it was more prominent before the 20th century. Why? Well, we had more murders, more death by war in the 20th century than all the centuries in human history combined. Um, in 1914 and beyond, with the start of the Great War, the First World War, uh, post-millennialism greatly, it greatly ebbed, it greatly waned, right? Uh, before that, it was like, man, look how great things are getting. And then um, the advent of the 20th century and the two world wars and all the, all the other horrific things um, that happened in the 20th century um, mean, mean that po- the post-millennial those who espouse postmodernism are fewer. It's not as prominent, but some still do. And, and, um, and, and I would say, too, you know, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history, but it's also been one of the greatest uh, for kingdom growth. And so in some of the places where, where evil and duress and, and death and pain have been the greatest, we talk about the global south. Basically everywhere but the West, the the, uh, the the kingdom of God is just growing by leaps and bounds. And so I think that really squares a lot with the amillennialist position, that as evil grows, so does, so does the kingdom grow. So, and that's really, again, squares with the economy of the cross. The cross was where evil was its great, in its greatest concentration in human history. We killed this God's son. We killed him. And in that, he did the greatest good possible for us. He opened a door through death into life unending, at peace with him, with his father, with the spirit, with the, with the triune God. I mean, he, he began the process of recreation by allowing us in our evil to, uh, to crucify him. And he orchestrated that in his sovereignty through our evil. And how wonderful. So that's... That's the quality of the kingdom that the amillennialists really, really uh, um, hang their hats on. And so, anyway, those are the three. I've waxed on way more than I intended to. That was supposed to be like five minutes. Um, but that's pre, post, and amillennialist. Uh, just a, a short, very short shrift on um, the fourth, the new kid on the block, is what I call um, the uh, dispensational premillennialism or... Um, it's referred to as as pre uh, as pre tribulational um, premillennialism as well, and so that's that's uh, that became prominent less than 200 years ago in the 1830s by a guy named John Nelson Darby. It was espoused by him, and he um, it's still so it's only it's been held not it wasn't one of the three 
main historic church views. It's the new kid on the block. It's only been around about 200 years. It's also not held globally. Uh, it's only held, it's only really held to in the southern United States. So here I'm, I'm in Houston, Texas, and a lot of Christians down here think that that's the only um, millennial view because that's, that's what's held to big time. That's changing some, but around here, and I was, I wasn't raised in the Baptist church. I was raised Presbyterian, but I went to a Baptist church school. And, and when they taught, um, revelation, it was in this grid. And so I just thought, well, that's the old, I didn't know that there were any other options. And so, but it's, it's ironic because it's not even one of their three historic options. It's new and it's not global. Now, does that mean it's wrong? No, nope, doesn't mean it's wrong. It could be right. It could be right about everything. It could be right about something. But it has the deck stacked against it for that reason, in my opinion. And it needs to have a very strong uh, set of proofs to show that it uh, surmounts some of the other. It, it's better than, preferable to the other three, the other three historic views. So, um, now, what are some of the details on that? I don't want to wax anymore, but it, it, all the stuff that you hear about the rapture, um, the, the rapture that, that pulls believers up to, to the Lord and then they all go with the Lord back up to heaven for a while while the earth kind of goes to hell in a handbasket. Um, that's the pre-tribulational part. A lot of, a lot of that is hooked to, okay, when that happens, then, um, then the tribulation really hits. The tribulation isn't now, they believe. It's during those, um, it's, it's right, um, that happens in the middle, maybe, of the tribulation or at the beginning of the tribulation. And so then after that, the earth really undergoes this, this horrible trial, this tribulation, and then Jesus returns and other things happen. So it's, it's, it's largely pre or mid tribulational. It focuses on the tribulation. It focuses on the rapture. It focuses on the antichrist. It focuses on Armageddon. It doesn't, for that reason, large, a, a lot of times focus on, and it has massive charts and all that stuff. And I just can't keep up. Maybe they're all right. But, um, for that reason, because of all these foci, there's not, the focus isn't on what? The thing that, can I, I'm sorry to be tongue in cheek, I don't mean to be, but the thing that Revelation focuses on. What's the focus of the book of Revelation? We've been walking through it. Well, what is it? <laughs> Who's the hero? Who shows up in glorious splendor, in victory, holding the keys of death and hell in um, the other, in major parts of the book at the beginning, chapter one? Who's the Jesus, the resurrected Christ, holds the keys of death and hell. In the middle of the book, the birth of Christ and his victory over Satan uh, and the church that comes from him. That's the dead middle of the book. What about the, not even to mention chapters four and five, where Jesus approaches the ancient of days and all creation bows down to him and starts rhapsodizing and praising. And then the end of the book, Jesus, Jesus, the conquering king, Jesus, he makes all things new, Jesus. Jesus is the focus. That's why John said at the beginning of the book, he wrote it to a persecuted church at the end of the first century saying, you win. Jesus won, you win. Even when it looks like, even when you're suffering, you win. You're more than conquerors. Here's what's really happening. Here's what's really happening. His kingdom is going out as you suffer, as you, as you witness, as you preach the gospel. His kingdom is going forward and he is reigning and you with him and he will return one day and make all things new. Okay. Jesus is the hero. Of Revelation, it, he said, "It's it's blessed are they, therefore, who read this book out loud and who do the things written in it. It's a blessing, not a curse. It's not a if it if the way that we teach this book engenders fear, if it takes the focus off of the finished work of Jesus and His incarnation, life, death, and resurrection and ascension, it's wrong. That's the hermeneutic. That's the interpretive tool. That's how you know you're off. 
if your focus is on other stuff and it's engendering fear, it's wrong. I'm just going to say that and just leave it there. Okay, so I I am pretty staunchly opposed to this theological grid, meaning this fourth new kid on the block, this pre this dispensational premillennial grid for the millennium because of those reasons, because because it's damaging. It doesn't fill the Christian with courage and hope and make and show that Jesus has indeed conquered and the father because of his work is making an enemy is making footstools of all, a footstool of all of his enemies and that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't do that. And that's a problem. That is a big, big problem. So, um, I need to wrap up here, but there's so much that I haven't said, but that's okay. Um, let me just say sort of as I draw, begin to draw to a close that, you know, tied up in this, a corollary to the reign of Jesus, the millennium is this bit in verses one through three, where it talks about this, uh, bottomless pit and the great chain. And this huge angel seizes the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and, and he binds him for a thousand years. So he throws him into the pit and then he's going to be released for a little while. And then there's this big war and that's Armageddon. And then Jesus vanquishes him. And then, um, there's a great white throne judgment. That's the, that I just took you through the end of the chapter. The first three verses though talk about this binding of Satan. And then it talks about the reign of Christ with his people, which I kind of described to you earlier, which I believe refers to not just the martyrs, but all who trust in Jesus who will suffer as a mark of, of their faith. And who I believe that that uh, verses four through six really speak to um, all who all believers will reign with Christ. All believers are privy to the first resurrection and therefore will be privy to the second resurrection, the bodily resurrection, who uh, will die the first death, but not the second death, right? So, but to wrap up, just that, here's a strong, one of the strong arguments by the pre, by the pre uh, millennialists is how can, we, we hear that, we, sh- we are shown here clearly at the beginning of the chapter that Satan is thrown into a pit and bound, it's locked. How can that be if, the, if, he, if Jesus is reigning now, if the millennium's now, they say to the post-mill and all-mill brothers and sisters. And by the way, we ought to be gracious in talking about all these things. This is a difficult passage. These, we, we're having friendly discussions. I almost said arguments. We're having friendly discussions here with our Christian brothers and sisters who differ. This is not stuff to go hang on and give it for. This is not stuff to, go, um, to, to be spiked and, 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 uh, and burned up in flames over. There are those things, which we've mentioned earlier. We ought to be, be willing um, to go to the pike for our faith. But these things, um, the, these things are, uh, they're hard and they're three historic positions. So, but our pre-mill brothers and sisters would say to their all-mill and post-mill brothers and sisters, wait a minute, if Jesus is reigning now, if indeed this is the millennium and it's not, it's not when he comes again, then how can Satan in the millennium, Satan is clearly bound. The, he can't be bound. Look at I mean, you just talked about the 20th century. Look at every over 100 million murders and war deaths. And really, I mean, that is just the worst reading I have ever heard. How can Satan be bound under lock and key in Christ during this time right now that Christ you say Christ is reigning? The key, my friends, and that's a good question, but the key is the text. Go to the text. Go to the text. What does the text say? It gives us the answer. It gives us the key. All right. Verse two, he's bound for a thousand years. 
and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. And here it is. Go to the text. When in doubt, go to the text. Sealed it over him. He shut in. He sealed in for a thousand years. Why? It tells you so that this is the end of verse three. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then he's released for a little while, gathers an army, and then Jesus blows on him with his breath and destroys him. Okay. Why is he released for a little while afterwards? Don't know. Final showdown. It's just the way good stories work. Um, the point is, why is Satan bound? To what purpose? We are told in verse 3b, so that he might no longer deceive the nations. Let me ask you a question. Is, is he bound up so that he might not do any damage anymore? Is he bound up so that uh, he can't touch anyone anymore? Is he bound up so that, is it the same thing as being cast into hell? No, 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 no. We're told it's so that he might not, it's for the express purpose that he might not deceive the nations. When he's bound, what does it mean? It means before he was able to deceive the nations. During this thousand years, he can't. And then he'll, he's released so that he can for a little while. After. Let me ask you a question. I mean, I just kind of talked about it in the, in the sermonette, but before Jesus came and began his reign and lived for us and died an expiatory and propitiatory death for us and rose, proving that his payment was sufficient to break, to break the power of Satan, the dominion of Satan, the reign of Satan. Who trusted in the living God? Who knew what he was like? Who had a relationship with him? The nations? Certainly not. One people, Israel. And even Israel was exiled for their unbelief in 587 BC under Nebuchadnezzar, removed from their land, and then 600 years later, when God came to his own people, what did they do? Did they embrace him and believe on him? No, they crucified him. And by the way, we all did. But his own people, there was so much darkness on the earth that even those who had the light, who had the oracles of God, Romans 9, crucified their own Savior. And he used that through his genius and love to save them and us. So, there was, he stepped down into darkness, the light of the world, John 1, the prologue. And, <laughs> and he conquered the darkness by letting it envelop him, but it couldn't keep him down. And he exploded it from the inside. And the light has been, has been radiating outward f from that third day, Sunday morning, the resurrection, ever since, to every, to the far reaches of the globe. And when that work is finished, he will return. My point is this. Think about how much light there was on that Friday afternoon as he was being crucified. Zero light. The light was extinguished. Not even his own people believed on him. Just a handful of people that lost hope. Certainly no nations. Every nation was deceived. Even Israel. Now, how much light is there? How much light was there even at the end of the book of Acts? At the end of Paul's ministry in 60 AD? 65 AD? Are you kidding me? The light of the gospel had shone forth as it was being proclaimed. The kingdom was radiating throughout the Mediterranean, throughout the Roman world. And now, all over the globe. And even now we can see that God's glory will indeed cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The nations, during this period of time, the end times, the last days, the age of the Spirit, the age of the Holy Spirit, the church age, whatever you want to call it. That's all the time period right now between the first and the second coming of Christ, between his resurrection and his return. Right now, he's reigning 
And Satan is bound so that he might not deceive the nations. Satan has no power any longer to deceive the nations. What? Why was he chained up? What, why is a dog chained up? A dog is chained up so that he can't, he can only do damage within that radius of the, the chain reaches to. Outside of that radius, he can't do any more damage. That is exactly right. The, the thing outside of the radius of Satan's chain by which he's bound in Revelation 20, this, this thousand years where Christ is reigning, is the deceiving of the nation. Before Jesus came, he was deceiving every nation. Now, for the past 2,000 years, he can't do it. Jesus has taken that away. He's bound. He can do a lot of damage within that chain. He can tear up the ground. He can snarl. He can, he can chew up stuff. He can do lots of damage, and he has done lots of damage, but the deceiving of the nations is not left to him. He can't reach that. We've seen that over the past 2,000 years. He'll be released for a time, and in that time, he'll be able to do some of that. Um, so that is, that is an argument for, for saying to our pre-trib brothers and sisters, uh, sorry, for our pre-millennium, millennial brothers and sisters, you know, he was, he has indeed been thrown in the pit. He rages, he knows his time is short though, and, uh, and he's, and he's no longer able to deceive the nations. And so, um, you know, I haven't even talked about how the reign of Christ is something that he talks about. Um, in, in the gospels, um, I believe it's in Matthew 12, 29. Um, not only the reign of Christ, but he says that he has, um, that Satan has been bound, you know, bind the strong man. He talks about binding the strong man and plundering his goods. And that's indeed what Jesus came to do. It's what he did in his ministry. It's absolutely what he consummately, what he did in his death. He turned the tables on Satan, crushed his head. And Satan is writhing now and doing lots of damage, but he's no longer deceiving the nations. His doom is sure. His defeat is imminent. It's already been started. The decisive work has been done. Christ is reigning and we with him. And his kingdom is going out through our suffering and through our pain as we proclaim the gospel. And we indeed, Ephesians 2, 6, are reigning with him. We are to be a people of great hope. So those are the three views. That's the reign of Christ. It's now. That's the binding of Satan. It's now. He'll be released for a time. Now, you just ask yourself, are, are these three views without consequence? Is it irrelevant? Should we just kind of be pan-millennial, like it'll all pan out in the end? I don't need to believe one. Well, it's here for a reason. It's a hard text, but you should dig and you should be convinced. Because, as you can tell, I think, from just listening, it does matter. It affects the way that you live. Does it induce fear? Does it line up with the rest of the scriptures? Do you believe that Christ has done the decisive work? Do you believe that he's reigning? Do you believe that you as a believer, if you indeed are one, are reigning with him? Or do, you, or do you believe that the earth is still Satan's domain? Do you believe that Satan is the one reigning? I talked to a believer who believes she's, she's a dispensational premillennial, and she believes that, uh, not that all dispo premillennials believe this, but she said, you know, a couple years ago to me, Satan's reigning right now, not Jesus. How can Jesus be reigning? I just thought, oh, dear soul, dear sister, I'm so sorry and horrified and sad that you feel that way. Jesus is reigning. Psalm 110, Psalm 2. Daniel 7, these are all fulfilled in, these are all described in this chapter. And they're all applied in the New Testament clearly and over and over and over again by Jesus and by those who wrote the, new, the rest of the New Testament through his spirit to Jesus. Jesus conquered at the cross in his life and death. And when we look to him, we do too, regardless of what kind of tumult we're going through here. 
regardless of wars and rumors of wars, our king is reigning. And the father is making of his enemies a footstool for his feet. He has done the decisive work. D-Day, the decisive battle in World War II, or one of them, has happened. And we, yeah, we still have lots of fighting to do, but we know that we win. And uh, we follow our captain. And so that's, uh, it matters. These things matter. They affect the way that we live. They affect, because our hope, our worldview, the way that we see um, what is happening in the heavenlies and what is and where we're headed and why matters. So this chapter is tough. It matters. It's important. God bless you as you wrestle with it, as you um, hope in Christ. And we will we will look at Revelation 21 next week. And I might uh, I might say something in Revelation 22. We had a two weeks ago. It was preached by by another by a sojourn spring branch pastor and so uh but it would almost be wrong for me not to put something here as a capstone on that so i may but god bless you and have a great week and um be a people filled with hope and joy knowing that indeed you are more than conquerors through christ who loved you and laid his life down for you and took it up again spread the good news amen god bless you